Welcome to Northview Community Church's podcast. Today we'll be continuing our series on the Gospel of Luke. But first, we will hear an Advent message from Pastor Darcy. Thursday is Christmas Eve. We know that Christmas and our favorite traditions look different this year. However, we are excited to share a special Christmas Eve service with you. We will be singing carols, hearing a message, and we even have something planned for the kids. As 2020 is coming to an end, we're looking forward to our ministry starting back up again. Visit our website for more info, and while you're there, sign up for our newsletter to never miss out on what's going on at Northview. Has anyone ever done something for you that was totally unexpected? I mean, you had no idea. When I was a youth pastor here at Northview many years ago, my volunteers decided to bless our family with supper every day for the month of October. How unexpected and totally appreciated. You know, over 2,000 years ago, God did something for us that was totally unexpected. It was an unexpected gift of love. You know, we've been going through the Advent season and we've talked about unexpected hope and joy and peace. And now I want to talk about unexpected love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God gave us a gift in his son, Jesus. But why? God's loving plan for us started back at creation. Out of nothing, God called forth light. He separated land from the sea, created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the creatures of the earth. But the pinnacle of his creation was when he created us, you and me. He created us in his own image, and he made us to love and to be loved. He created us to be with him. But the first humans doubted the truth of God's love for them and they rebelled. But even in humanity's fall into sin, we find God's loving mercy. God didn't destroy Adam and Eve, and even as they began to experience the serious consequences of their sin, God had a plan to save us. 1 John 4, 9 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. You know, Max Lucado once said, the God of the universe left the glory of heaven and moved into the neighborhood, our neighborhood. See, God's gift to us came in the form of a baby born in a manger. Unexpected love in an unexpected way. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 talks about Jesus and says, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, this Christmas, you'll likely be receiving many gifts. Well, at least I hope you do. But what if you just refuse to accept them? I mean, you just turn them all away. They wouldn't really be gifts for you then as you didn't receive them. See, God's gift to you through Jesus is the same. We need to accept his gift and repent of our sins, and then we're born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. Remember John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you've not trusted Jesus with your life, would you consider doing it now? You know, we've looked at God's love for us through Jesus, but there's one more aspect of love at Christmas that we don't want to leave out, and that's our love for one another. You know, at one point in Jesus' ministry, a teacher of the law asked him, of all the commandments, and there were many, 
which was the most important? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. So what do we do with the love God gave us? We love him and we love others. Is there someone you need to help this Christmas? Is there someone you need to reach out to? Is there someone maybe you need to forgive this Christmas? See, God showed his unexpected love for us at Christmas by sending his son into the world as a sacrifice for our sins. So the question for us is, what are we gonna do with the unexpected love that God gave us in Jesus? And how will we show love to others this Christmas? He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked as a carpenter until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never married or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. When he was 33, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I'm well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of humans on this earth as much as that one solitary life. James Francis was writing, of course, about Jesus Christ and the amazing impact his one life has had on human history. And I think if we were asked to summarize his life in just one sentence, there's no better summary than John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves, God gave eternal life. God loves, God gave eternal life. We are in the season of gift giving. We are in the season of Christmas. We've been thinking of the themes of love and joy and hope and peace, those Advent themes that remind us of all that Jesus came to give. And Christmas, in many ways, is all about the gifts, giving and receiving. In fact, that's probably a really good segue for me to just let you know about the gift that Northview is going to be giving to Midtown Church this Christmas. You may remember that four weeks or so ago, we let you know about of a project in Vancouver, an old Mennonite Brethren Church that had closed their doors and given their building to a new church plant. And that building needing a, an extensive home renovation, if you will, from stem to stern, it's going to cost about $1.7 million. 
And we were trying to raise about 150 to give them a nice gift towards that project. Well, it's my pleasure to be able to let you know that as of today, when I'm taping this, we have collected between Northview, Downs Road, and all of our campuses, including the Tri-City campus, close to $270,000 as a wonderful gift for this new project. I just want to say thank you to all of you generous donors, each one who gave towards this specific gift. You think at Christmas, however, and you think of two other givers. We think of God, of course, giving us his son, and in our culture, we think of Santa Claus. But think of the difference between those two types of gifts. You see, Santa's gifts are determined by our behavior. At least that's what the old song tells us. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. What kind of guy is this Santa Claus always watching us? But be good for goodness sake. He's making a list and checking it twice. I remember a few years back, my mom told us that that was her least favorite of all the Christmas songs, and we pressed her why that was. And you see, my mom, uh, who's 89 now, was the seventh of seven kids being raised at the peak of the Great Depression. She was born in 1931. And they lived in what we today would simply call dirt-poor Missouri sharecroppers. There was very little in their home. And as a little girl, that song came out in 1934. She heard the words of that song that Santa Claus is watching. You better be good. You better not cry or pout. And so she determined to be a very good girl so that there would be presents under the tree that year. And when, of course, Christmas came and there were no presents, she had to conclude that she was indeed a very naughty little girl. Sort of a sad story, but you think of the difference in the gift that Jesus' gift is, and the Bible story as being so different, that God so loved the world that he gave, and that that gift is not determined by our naughtiness or our niceness. Thank you, God, it's not. But it's given to all who would believe and receive. It's a gift, nonetheless, that comes with an implication. We're looking at the section of the Christmas story that's probably still the best known in Western culture. It's the classic story of every children's Christmas pageant. The shepherds and the angels and the baby Jesus in a manger. Our text, picking up from where Pastor Jeff left off last weekend, in Luke 2, beginning at verse 8. But the story underneath this text is really quite simple. The story behind the story is this, that Jesus is the gift we need. Jesus is the Savior we need. That's the big idea in this text. God knew what we needed, and he gave us his son, Jesus. So we're going to look at this text in just three very simple ways. The Savior announced, the Savior found, and finally, the Savior named. But if you've got your Bibles... I want you to follow along with me as we read Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 8 and down through verse 14. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, nearby Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Bethlehem, shepherds, angel, news. Bethlehem, shepherds, angel, news. In this story, we get yet another example of the humility of our Savior. We saw last week this powerless family that is summoned by the edict of the most powerful man in the kingdom to have their names added to a taxation registry. So, in essence, the poor could yet again be taxed by the rich. We saw Jesus' humble birth in this quickly cleared out animal stall. And in this week, we see the first to come visit is not the mayor, is not a Roman soldier, is not even a Jewish priest, but ordinary men working ordinary jobs, going about their ordinary lives. You see, so much of Jesus' life turns our worldly standards upside down. And so we probably shouldn't be shocked that the first to hear of his birth were the lowliest by world standards, men who were at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder of success. These were not educated men. These were not academics. They were not religious leaders. They had no political power or influence. They smelled like wood fire and sheep manure. Not the first people that we would think that you would announce the arrival of a king. And the beauty and the irony should not be lost on us because it's completely backwards from our way of thinking how a dignitary arrives. I mean, just think of it this way. If Justin Trudeau were to come to Abbotsford to visit and instead of calling the mayor or the city council, he just shows up at some farm and he isn't even at the farm to see the farm owner, but he goes out to the barn to speak to the farmhands who are shoveling silage and getting ready to fill the honey wagon to go spread on the fields. It's just upside down. It's backwards. Compare the opposite extreme to the last time Queen Elizabeth visited the United States nearly 30 years ago. You see, here in Canada, there's still this sense of respect and, and love for our monarch. And her visits have always been met with positive reports in the press. But back in 1991, when she visited President George Bush, some reporter got hold of her itinerary and all the logistics and details that went into the planning of this visit and the expense it required. The details include things like this, her 4,000 pounds of baggage. You heard that right, 4,000 pounds, two tons of luggage. That included, among other things, two outfits for every occasion, a morning outfit in case someone died, 40 pints of plasma, and what everyone needs, white kid leather toilet seat covers. She brought her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. And her short visit to the United States was estimated to cost $2,000. 
$20 million. Now that's how we expect royalty to arrive. Jesus came in humility to a humble people. It's always been his way. And even today, he does not seek the hallways of great power or wealth. Instead, he looks for the broken, for the weary, for the ones with dirt under their nails and worry lines across their face. A blue-collar Jesus for blue-collar people. That's really who our Savior is. And it should be a great comfort to you and me. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Aren't you glad that that is the heart of our loving father? So it was to humble shepherds that this savior is first announced. Now, before we move on, I should probably make at least one comment about the angels. It's not our main focus, but this was no rosy-cheeked, fat baby, halo-wearing cherub. This was a warrior-like being in full glory. The shepherds are terrified. Now, shepherds may have been many things, but one thing they were not was timid. They were not fearful. They had lived a hard life. They defended themselves and they defended their flocks. They lived the majority of their lifetime in the out of doors. And they were hardened by the elements and by hard work. And yet these men are terrified at the angel's first words. And so he has to say to them, fear not, chill out. I'm not here to, uh, to frighten you. I'm not here to wipe you out. I'm here to lift you up. I've got a message for you. A message of good news. Now, I don't know. It's probably just my twisted sense of humor, but I was wondering, so for a shepherd, what's good news? The price of lamb chops has risen in the marketplace. Uh, there's a new fashion trend and wool toques are going to be all the rage this season. But no, it was something far more important. Nothing trivial as, as this. I've got good news. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, just down the road from you, the Messiah, the Christ. Christ the Lord has come to your village. This is the good news. And this verse should have landed like a clap of thunder in their minds. You see, for 400 years, the Lord had been silent. But the Jewish nation knew full well the Old Testament prophet that a king was anticipated, a king was coming, that one day a son would arise from King David's family tree and the throne of Israel would be established again. A king was coming who was unlike any king they had ever known. In his kingdom, his rule and reign would be an eternal kingdom. Now the prophet Isaiah probably said more about this coming king than any other of the Old Testament prophets. This coming Messiah called the Anointed One, the Christ, 
the Lord. In fact, Isaiah had so much to say about Jesus that some have called him the evangelical prophet. The second half of his book in particular, from chapters 40 to chapter 66, is almost entirely about this coming king and his kingdom. And there's so many sections that we could look at, but we don't have time. But promise after promise after promise, and I I wanted to highlight at least one of them. Isaiah 42 says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Now, you might wonder, why is that Old Testament passage important? Well, first, because this was the only Bible that the shepherds would have known. And secondly, it's to remind us that the entire Bible is about Jesus the good news about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. The Old Testament predicted Jesus. The gospels revealed Jesus. The New Testament letters explained Jesus. And the revelation, again, Jesus is expected, the soon and coming king. It's all about Jesus, Old and New Testament. And if there was one thing that Jewish people knew they needed in the first century Judea was this, they needed a Savior. And so a Savior is announced to unlikely men. And that message was like a thunderclap in the heavens. The Messiah is here. And to just put an exclamation point on it, the heavens open up to a heavenly choir of angels singing out the hallelujah chorus. Glory to God in the highest. A Savior announced. The second half of the story is really straightforward. The Savior is found. Beginning at verse 15, it says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. It's pretty straightforward. The angels go back to heaven and the shepherds hurry into town. There's a lot of details, of course, that we don't know. How long did it take them to find the right house? Did they go door to door? How late was it? We know it's nighttime. Was it the middle of the night? Did they wake up the whole city knocking on doors, asking anybody got a new baby inside? How long did they stay? Did they cause a disturbance? Did they wake up the whole village? We don't know all the details, but what we do know is that eventually a crowd is gathered around the manger, and the shepherds are happy to recount everything that they have seen and heard, and everyone who hears this report is amazed 
the Messiah, Christ, the Messiah? Could it be that this little baby in this manger is indeed the Savior that we have expected? They share everything that the angel had told them. Good news. Christ is born. A Savior. And then they head back to work. That's really the end of the story of that Bethlehem night wrapped up in verse 20. And of course, it's in the parentheses. It's written between the lines. You don't really see it here. But on the way back, they wrote the first Christmas carol. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell. It's, it's right there. Uh, the shepherds were watching their flocks at night. When an angel appears, go tell it on. You remember that, of course. Well, it's in my Bible anyway. The Savior is announced. The Savior is found. And then almost like a little footnote, Luke adds in this phrase, he's given a name, and the Savior is named in verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he had been Conceived. You see, it was custom in that day that Jewish boys were circumcised and given their name on the eighth day. And it's almost like a bridge between our Bethlehem story and what happens six weeks later at the temple in Jerusalem. Five weeks would pass before they take this boy to dedicate him before the Lord. But it's significant in this bridge that we are given his name and we dare not rush past the significance of that name. Mary was told, and Joseph was told, Luke 1, 31, you are to give him the name Jesus. And in Matthew 1, 21, when the angel speaking to Joseph, he adds this phrase, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, the name Jesus in first century Judea was a common name, much like it is in Mexico today, Jesus. It was Jesus, a common name. It was the Greek form of a very popular Hebrew Old Testament name, Joshua, Yeshua. And that word Yeshua, that name Yeshua, Joshua means salvation is of the Lord. God saves. God rescues. Yeshua, Joshua. Jesus, Jesus. It makes sense to call him Jesus because his name indicates his calling that he is here to save. And so we know him, of course, by both his name, Jesus, and his title, the Christ. Jesus, the Christ, or as his name was quickly adapted, simply Jesus Christ. Christ, of course, is the New Testament form for the Old Testament word Messiah, and it simply means the anointed one. As prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil when they set out on their calling, so this one, this high priest, this high king came to save us was the anointed one. And so we can summarize this passage in a very simple way. It's a very simple story. It's a familiar Christmas tale. A Savior is announced, a Savior is found, and a Savior is named. Good news, great joy, Merry Christmas, and it would be a wrap. But, 
But maybe. Maybe just maybe. This text is also a slap in the face. You see, the elements of this story are still well known in the West, but increasingly its implications are being rejected. You see, to an angry world, to a skeptical world, to an easily offended world, these words could be like a bucket of cold water on their journey to self-actualization. Savior? What are you on about? Savior from what? I don't need a savior. I'm doing very well by myself, thank you very much. Only people who are in trouble need a savior. And you see, it is the implication of this text that makes it both amazingly beautiful and life-giving as well as in the same moment provocative and potentially offensive. For what Jesus saves us from is the one disease that it is humanly impossible for us to heal ourselves of. A virus that has infected the human race that is 100% fatal. It is a slow, progressive disease. It is a malignant and coercive disease. It moves with aggressive patience, destroying all of us. And it is passed from generation to generation to generation. The die is cast at the moment of conception. The fate is sealed, certain death. And far more deadly than any other virus, this virus, the S.I virus kills 100% of the time. You carry this virus. I carry this virus. And it's killing us. You see, sin kills. It kills our families. It kills our relationships. It kills trust. It kills contentment. It kills the rightful worship of a holy God. It kills our rest. It kills our sex lives. It kills our finances. In fact, if there is anything beautiful in this life, anything of beauty to be had in this world, sin has it in its crosshairs to destroy it. So who can save us? The underlying but not so subtle implication of this news is that we need a Savior. And so this is what God sends us at Christmas. He saw our need. He sees our hopeless state. He knows our hopelessness. And for those inside the church, for those who've been raised in Christian homes or have embraced the Christian faith for any length of time, those words can just roll off the tip of our tongue without really even thinking about it. Good news, great joy, the Savior is born. But for everyone who is not inside the church, they might hear those words in a very different way. In fact, they may reject these words as being outright offensive. Good news, you see, by definition, has to be contrasted to bad news. What would be good news today? Well, obviously, I think if you went out on the streets this moment in time and ask anyone you hear, what would be good news? It would be that this pandemic is over. 
we would all send up a shout of joy. Our long isolation has come to an end. Life can go on. We're free again. But if someone called you up, a friend, a family member, whoever, and said, hey, I want to come over. I want to share some good news with you. You would think through a number of scenarios. Maybe it's a young couple you know, and they announce that they have gotten engaged. Or they're expecting their first child. Or maybe it's that dream you have that the lawyer calls, and apparently there's a rich relative that you've never met and you never knew. In fact, you didn't even know they existed, but this relative has died, and lo and behold... That even though you never met them and never celebrated a holiday with them, never sent them a birthday card, they loved you very much. And they have left their sizable estate to you and you alone. And overnight, you have become a very wealthy person. Now, that would be good news. You see, great news means that the economy is doing better. A cure for cancer has been discovered. Good news means there's a solution to some bad news. So how is it good news that a Savior is born? Who needs a Savior? A lifeguard's great if you're drowning. A firefighter is a godsend if the house is burning down. You probably have never cared about the oncologist until you learned you had cancer. A financial counselor isn't critical unless you're sinking in debt. The search and rescue team is irrelevant until you get lost in the backwoods and it's growing dark. See, what if our world isn't looking for or even wanting a savior? Good news is only good news when you know you need it. And there was a day in North America where most people understood the implications of this story. Our culture was hardwired with this story. A generation ago, all the spiritual dots were in our mind's eye. We believed in a God or some higher power. We shared a common cultural awareness of right and wrong, of good and bad. We had a corporate sense of guilt and shame over our failures and our foibles, and someone simply needed to come along and connect those dots for us by preaching the gospel message, and it made sense to us. But this is no longer the case. Tim Keller, in a recent book, How to Reach the West Again, talks of the needed change in our approach to a culture that no longer holds the Bible as being self-evident. And he has this provocative one line. He says, today's culture believes the thing that we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. Uh, let me read that again. Today's culture believes the thing that we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. We've just got to get rid of that concept altogether. Instead, our culture is more likely to respond, who are you to imply that I need a savior? I'm doing just fine on my own. Thank you very much. Keep your salvation to yourself. I'll worry about my life. You worry about yours. I'll take care of myself. 
Back in 1998, Steven Spielberg directed the epic World War II film, Saving Private Ryan. It's a great Mennonite film. The story, in a nutshell, went something like this, that there were four sons from one family in Iowa that all went off to war. And three of them died in action. And so an elite eight-man special forces team was sent out into northern France searching for one solitary soldier among the thousands, a man named Private James Francis Ryan, and they were sent to bring him home as the only living son so that his mom would not suffer the loss of all four boys. It's a harsh movie. It's three hours long. I won't go into all the details, but the greatest shock in this movie, and I'll just tell you it's spoiler alert, but it's 22 years old, so probably by now you know the story, that when they finally locate Private Ryan, and they tell him why they are there. They are there to bring him home. They are saying to him, in essence, we are here to save you. And he answers them in reply, thanks, but no thanks. I'm staying put. And in that moment, those guys want to rise up and kill this guy. In the end of the story, in fact, the majority of that team dies in order to save that one that they came to save. And the story is provocative, that eight men would risk their very lives to rescue just one, and that and when they found him, that their message of salvation was turned down. But this is precisely the scriptures tell us was and is the response of so many people to the offer of life that Jesus gives to us. John is the most clear in his gospel. He says in John 1 verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. A couple chapters later, Jesus is conversing with one of the religious leaders named Nicodemus. And he says to him, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Our text demands a response. It would be wrong of me to close without asking you this question. What have you done with Jesus? I don't know who you are or where you are hearing this message from today, but I can tell you one thing with certainty that every man and woman and boy and girl who is listening to this message carries a common DNA. Every single one of us has a sinful heart that can only be healed by Jesus Christ. So let me ask you as we close off this series of Advent messages, 
Is this text really good news for you? Before hearing the message of hope that the text offers, have you recognized the bad news and its impact on your life? Because until we come face to face and accept all that is wrong with the world actually resides within the human heart, we will never look for a savior outside ourselves. Instead, we will continue to look at all different types of functional saviors. Just a little more money, just a little better body, a few more designer clothes, a few more exploits on the sporting field or in the marketplace, a few more employees at the company, a few more likes on Facebook and Instagram. If only people would like me more, love me more, respect me more, my life would have meaning. A little more sex, a little more power, a little more fame or acclaim or pleasure, and life will have meaning. But unfortunately, the faster we run after all of these imposter saviors, the further out of reach satisfaction seems to be. And until we can recognize that ultimately it is our sin that separates us from God and from one another, we won't cry out for a savior. But when we come to the end of ourselves, when we finally realize that there's a mess that we can't fix, and that without the intervention of an outside advocate that we are hopelessly and helplessly lost, then and only then are we ready for the good news of Bethlehem. Saving us from the sins of our past, the slate is wiped clean white as snow, saving us today as the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to live the kind of lives that we want to live, lives of flourishing, lives of community, lives of love and joy and hope and peace, enabled by the saving work of the Holy Spirit, and most importantly, saving us on that coming day when we stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on the judgment seat, and we must give an account for the lives that we have lived, and Jesus steps into our place and says, this one's with me, saving us from the judgment to come. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the Christmas gift that we all need. And it's not about whether your name is on the naughty or nice list. It's given to everyone who will believe and receive. He is the one who can change your life in every way that actually matters. Have you said yes to this gift? Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for the men and women, for the boys and girls that are listening to this message. And Lord, I ask that in this moment by your Holy Spirit that you would open the eyes of our heart to see and to hear and to understand that there is a deep need inside of us that can only be healed through the healing work of Jesus Christ. That this message to the saviors of good news, to the shepherds rather, of good news that a savior is born is the message that every single one of us needs. And so, Lord, I pray for the Christians who are listening to this, that at this Christmas season, our hearts might joy, uh, well up with joy and rejoicing at all that you have done for us, the work that you have accomplished in our life, the work that you are finishing in our life. 
Father, for the skeptics out there, I pray that they would not push you away entirely without thinking of their worldview and what other solution could possibly meet their needs. And Father, for each of us, that this Christmas season, we would humbly bow our knees before you and simply say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I will receive this gift that you have given in your son, Jesus, for your glory and for our great joy. Amen.